I've asked this question over the years um, to friends of mine because I'm not quite sure yet how to resolve um, the answer to this question. Scripture commands that we give glory to God. And I continue to ask the question, how do we as created beings adequately give glory to God? It's a very difficult concept that we would be in a position where we can proclaim his glory. We, we attempt to do it through worship in music. We attempt to do it through prayer. One of the things God says he's most glorified by is when we recount his acts, his activity, not only in creation but in our lives. And I've come to understand that that's a significant way that God compels us to give him glory is by recognizing who he is. So in Hebrews 11.3, when it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. We understand that God is declaring, I did things you will never comprehend. I made things come into existence that didn't exist. And therefore, you can proclaim my glory when you just acknowledge that you can't figure it all out. And I'm God, and you're not. So I can accept that. I can accept that God can do things that I can't ever understand. He did give me a written record to understand it to the best of my ability. I was aware this last week in a survey that I read um, that we have a generation of young people coming up who don't have a good grasp on the activities of things that have gone before them. This one may shock you, uh, but I read this week that there was a survey conducted in the last month in Britain, in England, in Great Britain, among respondents, 25% of those who answered the question about the historicity of people who had lived in Great Britain in the last hundred years, 25% of the respondents believes that Winston Churchill is a mythological figure. No kidding. Can you imagine? Now, not surprisingly so, the 25 percentile group primarily was from the age group of 20 and under. They believe that Winston Churchill, Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, and they started stretching people over time, were created to sell books and films. Here's a quote from one of the historians in Great Britain. His name is Corelli Barnett. Young Britons under 20 lack a basic historical education. This suggests a complete lack of common sense and respect for our greatest heroes of the past. If we do not proclaim the things of God, if we do not read about his acts, his activity, the generation behind us is destined to forget also. And so therefore we have a great responsibility as the church to continue to talk about the things of God. So something that doesn't take place in church very often anymore, I'm going to invite you to participate with me in, because I used to do it all the time as I was a kid, and it's called Congregational Responsive Reading. So would you all stand up? We're going to read a passage together from Psalms 104. Let's read this together. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the wind his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations, so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. Have a seat. That is a psalm of praise that was written by an author whom we're not told of, but someone who had a grasp of the understanding of God's activity. It wasn't David. David wrote a lot of the Psalms, but this one is an anonymous author. I would say it's not just a psalm of praise, but it's a psalm of truth. And I'm going to help you uncover some of the truth that's within that psalm this morning as we look again at origins. Now, when you think scientific data, you usually think of the phrase theory, scientific theory. The word theory comes to mind. So theory is this, according to science, a repeatable, observable process, a mathematical or logical explanation, or a testable model capable of predicting future occurrences or observations of the same kind, and capable of being tested through experiment or otherwise falsified through empirical observation. Kind of lengthy, isn't it? But when you understand the text of that, you can understand why people who base their belief system on science and science alone really have a struggle with Scripture. Unless they have a relationship with God, they can't prove God through empirical data. So if God has not been faithful in their life because they don't have a relationship with Him, it's very difficult for them to think empirically that this God indeed exists. Now, if you're following me on this, I personally don't have a Big Bang theory. I have a Big God theory. Okay? So that's what this really comes down to. You have a Big God theory that's capable of doing the things that we're studying. So let's do a brief review of the things that we've looked at over the last five weeks. First, we started out with God creating all of what we have in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Cast this whole universe together by the spoken word. Pretty powerful concept. And then he moved us forward into the very first day, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, when it was tohu vabohu, remember, form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep, everything was waste. And God spoke it into existence and he said, as we learned last week, let there be light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And now today, we move into Genesis 1, verse 6. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to open up to that, that's fine this morning. It'll all be up on the screen as well. As a matter of fact, I haven't said this in a few weeks. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you'd like to take one with you today when you leave, you are welcome to do that. 
Genesis 1.6, let's look at this. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Why does he add, and it was so? It's a phrase that's used in uh, Hebrew language to affirm something that never changes. Once it's spoken that way, and it was so, it will never change. So God's saying, it was so. It's a fixed, permanent, unchanging principle. He doesn't say yet, though, if you haven't noticed this before when you looked at Genesis, he doesn't yet say, and it was good. He won't say that until verse 10. If you just want to mark that down in your mind, you can bookmark that, and we'll come back to that later. There's a really specific reason for that. Now, the word that's used specifically in some of your Bible's translations, it might say firmament, but in the translation I'm using, the Revised Standard Version, it actually says expanse. Let there be an expanse. So let's look at the word expanse. A visible arch of the sky, rakia is the Hebrew word. A visible arch of the sky. Now here's what it means. If you think back to the time in Deuteronomy when God gave specific directions to the people who were building the tabernacle. And in the Old Testament, they were given sheets of metal to pound out. Perhaps you've seen people pound out gold sheets before into very thin layers. That act of pounding the metal into very, very thin layers is rakia. It means to make a thin layer. And so it's a spread out thinness, a very thin covering, the expanse over the top of the earth. How in the world did someone write that several thousand years ago who had never been in a space shuttle? Know that there was a thin layering covering over the earth when many of their forerunners who were born after them thought that the earth was actually flat. It's a phenomenal thought that somebody 4,000 years ago would know that there's a rakia over the surface of the earth. Now, the ancients called this the vault of heaven, the rakia. The vault of heaven, meaning a storehouse. And what did it keep up there? Well, if you find verse 6 through verse 8 to be fairly complicated language, and if you haven't concentrated on it before, you may not recognize that what God actually did is he took water that was covering the entire surface of the earth and he lifted water up and separated the waters from the water. So you've got the water covering the surface of the earth and you've got the vapor canopy, the water over the atmosphere, what we call the expanse, the rakia. And in between is what's known as the sky or the first heaven. The one that we refer to, the first heaven in Scripture, is different than space being the second heaven or the heaven where God dwells, the third heaven. Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hand. You may not read that psalm the same way next time you read that. The expanse is declaring the work of His hand, the rakia that's forming around the planet. This is a quote from a very ancient Jewish writer. I wanted to share it with you. I love some of the writings of old authors. As soon as the firmament was established in the midst of the layer of water, it began to rise, arching like a vault. 
In its course, it expands. In the course of its upward expansion, it lifted at the same time the upper waters resting on top of it. Above now stands the vault of heavens, surrounded by the upper waters. Beneath stretches the expansive lower waters, that is the waters of the vast sea, which still covers all the heavy, undifferentiated matter on the earth. The earth is beginning to take shape. God took some of the waters up. He left some of the waters down. But what is this water that's over the top, the vapor that's around? Perhaps you've heard the theory before, but many theologians and Christian scientists believe, Christian science individuals, people who believe in Christian science, how can I say this the right way? <laughs> Not the Church of Christian Scientists, okay? Good, solid theologians who believe scientifically <laughs> believe that there was a canopy of water that covered the earth, okay? Perhaps very thick. Even guys as conservative as John MacArthur believe that this was probably the way God did this and the way that he refracted UV light rays. Have you ever asked yourself before, how in the world did Adam live to be 950 years old? I mean, if you believe emphatically that Scripture is true and accurate, and it says that Methuselah was 969 years old, how in the world did he get to be 969 years old? The theory is that there was a canopy of water that covered the entire surface of the earth up in the sky and it allowed the light rays to not get through, the UV rays, which did not age people. And eventually at the time of the flood, God poked a hole in that thing and it all came pouring down. That's the theory in a nutshell. It's much more complicated than that. But it's a water vapor that served as like a, glo a global greenhouse. Now, within the midst of that global greenhouse, there would be no air circulation. Now, there's good creation Christian science people who believe that this theory is all washed up. So you take it for what you want to. I'm just going to explain to you where this might come from because I want to share a verse with you that backs that up a little bit. It's a combination of very warm temperatures, a uniform humidity, creating a global greenhouse, no dust particles in the air. Sounds like paradise, doesn't it? A little bit. Genesis 2, 5, 6 says this. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Kind of like an underground sprinkling system. Cool. No rainstorms, no windstorms, no dust particles. Very possibly... That's why people lived to be such a long age. And at the time of the flood, instantly men started only living 70 years of age. Is that really the way it was? Genesis and the whole text doesn't specify. So we're bound to just draw some conclusions out of what we do have here. So let's move on to verse 9. Then God said, let the waters, plural, Below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, unchanging again. Dry land appearing. God then commands these waters that cover the earth to be gathered and the surface of the earth begins to rise up out of the ocean. An interesting word is used here. 
The word synagogue is used in the definition of this. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be synagogued into one place, meaning a gathering together. All of the waters being gathered into one place, allowing, if you allow me to stretch here in a theory again, let's move on to the next slide. Allowing potentially one massive continent to rise up out from in the waters. Now, if you haven't heard of this philosophy before, just let me briefly explain it. It's a continent called Pangea. And it's a supercontinent, is what it's explained by most creation individuals who follow this line of thought. And Pangea, let's go to the next slide, would believe that most of the major continents were together at one time. There's nothing unbiblical about this, so if you're struggling with that, don't, you don't have to go there. It may be that the way the United States is now and South America is now is right where it was when God called it up out of the valleys and up out of the deeps. But it looks like everything might have fit together at one time, and then perhaps God caused, caused it to just kind of crack apart and separate, very possibly. At this time, though, in this verse, according to chapter, verse 9, that the waters gathered into one place, all the waters touching each other, salt water and fresh water, and God called those up into existence. Let me share with you Job 38. Job 38, verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in a thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. You ever stood on the banks of an ocean or perhaps on the Great Lakes and tried to stop a wave? I don't ask that too facetiously because I tried to do it once when I was in Alaska. My friends and I had taken a commercial fishing boat out and uh, we had this brilliant idea that we were going to uh, get up on shore. And there was only one way to get up on shore, and that was if the guy with the commercial fishing boat, and this is a fairly large vessel, about 27,000 pounds, would get close enough to the shore so that as the uh, waves moved in, on the back swing of the wave, we would jump off the bow of the boat onto dry land. Well, in theory, in our mind, that worked really well but it didn't work so well when he actually tried it. He got as close as he could to the shoreline, and mind you, these are eight and nine foot waves, and so the boat's swinging wildly, going up and down, and we thought we had timed it just right and jumped off, and I jumped off onto dry land only to look back and see this massive bow right up here above me because the waves were bringing it back in again. Fortunately, the wave took it back out, and I didn't get crushed, and I'm here to talk to you today, but successively the next wave brought the boat back in and beached it. And so here we are, four of us in distant regions of Alaska with a 27,000 pound vessel sitting on the beach and looking at each other thinking, how in the world did we ever conceive this idea? And the captain of the boat not wanting to call the Coast Guard to pull him off the beach because he knew he'd get a big fine along with it. Um, we thought, okay, we'll wait for the tide to come in and lift the boat back up. Unfortunately, it was already at high tide. <laughs> yeah, I know, we weren't real sharp. So, um, we worked and we worked and we worked 
just to get the back end of the boat up on the water and allow the water to gently push it. But every one of those eight and nine foot waves that came in pushed all of us back like we were nothing. And God said, I shut the seas behind the doors. I told it to stop. This far you may go and no further. God does things that we can't do. If we could have power over the hurricanes, we would. It's not possible. We're just mere mortals. So we've got this water surrounding the earth and God says, let the dry land appear in verse 9. And a simple five-word statement begins to unfold this cataclysm. Can you even begin to fathom what took place at that moment when God said, let the dry lands appear? The material in its unformed condition, chemically reacting, all this tremendous soil just lifting up, water rushing away. As a matter of fact, there's a description for us in Psalms 104 that you just read when we stood and did congregational reading together. Let's go back and look at it again. Psalm 104.5 He established the earth on its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. Notice where the waters are. This is before the earth is called up. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose and the valley sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. God called, verse 10, the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Remember I told you to bookmark that at the very beginning of this talk. God didn't say in verse 3 at the end of the first day when he separated light and darkness that it was good. But now in verse 10, he says it was good. Why here? Because now the earth is habitable for man. The whole focus of his creation, it was good. When we look at that and we think, God did that for me? It was good. It was good because it was now capable of containing and sustaining life. Imagine this. Here's an imagery as you look at the globe from space. We're told that the angels existed before the creation of the earth. According to Scripture, in Job, the angels were present at creation. Job 38, 6 and 7, it says, On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, a description of angels, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Have you read Daniel and seen a description of the voice of an angel? If you haven't, later today, read Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel says, I heard his voice, and it was like the thunder of rolling water. And then in Revelation, John says that the angels before the throne were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands, hundreds of millions of roaring voices singing at creation for what God was doing when he called the earth up out of the water. It's an imaginary thought 
a wonderful, incredible thought. I hope when I get to eternity that God's got a video library I can check out some of this stuff. Because it's just, it boggles my mind. Because I watched the Super Bowl last week. And there were 73,000 people in Phoenix watching the Super Bowl. They are alive. And it was so loud that I had to keep turning the TV down when somebody scored a touchdown. And I thought to myself this week as I read this account of the angels, we're mere mortals. And only 73,000 people there cheering. God said there are hundreds of millions of angels cheering at this. Do you grasp what I'm doing for you? All focused down on declaring the glory of God. It's a pretty amazing thought when he begins to shape this for us. Now notice the description of the work of the second day. The text doesn't say that God said it was good. It's on the third day. The heavens were made. The waters were separated. But where man lived was still hidden on the second day. It was only on the third day when God called the land up and separated the land from the water. He said, it's good. It's habitable for man. And this is all funneling down to one specific purpose. The creation of the Garden of Eden. A place for man to dwell. Later on, coming up in a couple chapters, another chapter later, we'll look at the location of the Garden of Eden and we'll explore that. But this is all about God preparing a place for us to dwell. Verse 11, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with a seed in them, and it was so. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them, after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. If you got your text and you don't mind circling it, I would write in the margin, the God who sees. God saw that it was good. He's the God who's watching and he sees. And in his second act on the third day, God furnished us with food. He brings out the land with bushes and trees. But you need to notice something. Let me read this for you again. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. Do you notice that the text only focuses on the seed-bearing vegetation? See, when it says he brought forth vegetation, that's a pretty broad subject, isn't it? Any of you in here are farmers, you know that the earth will yield all kinds of vegetation. But God specifically in this verse just focuses on, on plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind. The earth brought forth vegetation. I think the reason he only focused on those is that those are the things that were good for man to consume. The fruit tree with the seed in it to bear fruit for man to eat. The vegetation with the seed in it to reproduce after its kind. We're talking about vegetables and fruit. The things that we can consume. Verse 11, plants yielding seed. Verse 12, plants yielding seed. Verse 29, plants yielding seed. It's repeated over and over again to let us understand that these things are capable of reproduction. Repeating the process over and over again. And following that up, each time it's said, after their kind, verse 11. After their kind, verse 12. Do you know if you go through and circle that in the first chapter, you'll find that it says that after their kind ten times? What's significant about that? 
The Hebrew word means mean, M-I-N, mean. And it means it's got to stay within its own cell group, within its own kind, after its kind. Literally what the phrase means is it can't step out of the biological process. It has to stay within its group. So ten times in the first chapter of Genesis, God says it is not possible for things to step out of their origin. That's an interesting thought, kind of like it refutes evolution. Because evolution would say that everything descends from a common ancestry. And God's saying, no, sorry. Reproduced from its own seed after its kind. And if you don't get it, I'm going to tell you ten times after its kind. Now, look around this room. Look at the people next to you. Go ahead. They don't care. Look at each other. A lot of different people in here. All different looking. Some strange looking. <laughs> but all people, right? All after our own kind. All within our own species. None of you have become anything else or ascended from anything else. Very clearly, God said, I want you to understand, ten times I'm going to say it in the first chapter, never will anything step out of its own biological origin. I think he made it very clear for us. And then we wrap it up in verse 13. And God looked at it all and saw that it was good. He punches the time clock one more time. Verse 13, And there was evening and there was morning a third day. There was Arab and Boker. You have that verse up there? Anybody up there? Bring up verse 13. Oh, you don't have that one, do you, Tyler? Sorry. My bad. Verse 13. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. The words are Arab and Boker. Remember this if you're a student of theological scripture. Arab and Boker are used 100 times in the Old Testament. And they're always used in the context of a 24-hour solar day. There was Arab and Boker, morning and evening. Pretty fascinating thought. 100 times God said, I'm going to emphasize this for you, morning and evening. I did it in a 24-hour day. I started out the text of this message with Hebrews chapter 11. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. You know that word prepared is used another time in the book of John? And it was used by our Savior when Jesus said, you can't follow me where I'm going because where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I go, I may call you unto myself. And then he used it again when he said, in my Father's house, there's many mansions. There's a lot of castles. And I go to prepare them. The same word used in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talked about God preparing this global sphere for us. God, whom we're learning about, so detailed, so focused on our own good that he prepared this biosphere for us. Can you even begin to imagine what he's prepared for you in eternity? I go to prepare a place for you. He's done a pretty good job with preparing this place. 
I can't wait for what's in store. I'm going to ask you to stand again. The last one that Tyler does have is Psalms 33. We're going to read this together. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Anybody here want to say amen? Amen. Pretty amazing. Would you bow with me? Father, it's been good to be in this place today. You recorded things that people might have read a thousand years ago. And the great thing is, it's the same truth today as it was then. Father, we stand on this firm truth. You are the Creator, and we give You glory. Because You didn't only create and establish for us, but You gave us a Savior to find a way to You. God, You made a way. It's because of all this that we give You glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.